Uh, it's worth saying, uh, today we're going to be talking about money. That's exciting, isn't it? And you're thinking, man, I don't get to church very often, but here I am in church and they're talking about money. What's the story? You need to know we don't talk about money, really, at all. Uh, we talk about it when it comes up in the Bible and we're up to chapter 6 of Timothy and so we're going to talk about money today. Isn't that exciting? Uh, it's not really just money, though, really. What, what we're actually going to be talking about um, is how much is enough and related to that, the idea of contentment. How much is enough and the idea of contentment. And uh, since all of that isn't particularly easy, I'm going to pray for us and we'll dive in. Uh, dear God, please help us. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, Father, would you teach us? Uh, would you remind us of things we already know? Would you challenge barriers that exist? And would you help us to live in a way that's pleasing to you, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Alrighty, so, uh, so the idea is we're in a book. Uh, come to the end of the letter. Timothy was being written to by his friend Paul, an older man, and he's being told how to look after the congregation, his little church uh, that he's caring for. Uh, the key to understanding what I'm going to say today is that you have to kind of buy into the idea that Jesus is king and that God will call all people to account at the end. If you're not on board with that, that key idea, then today I'm, I'm comfortable saying this advice might sound a little bit crazy. You know when they, um, they say on, uh, on radio shows, if they're talking about money, they might say, well, this is not really financial advice. You should see your financial advisor. Do you know how they always have that disclaimer? And they do it really quickly. This is not really professional advice. Do you know how they do that bit at the end of... Anyway, I'm going to say that. I'm not a financial advisor. I am a minister. I'm going to talk to you about money and, and that sort of thing. It's not financial advice that you should uh, go and, you know, mortgage your house or something again or something like that. But it will, I believe, if you put it into practice help you on a path towards contentment, which I think most financial advisors won't be able to help you with. All right, let's dive in. The balance is found, I'm going to say today, in a thing called contentment. Now, when I say contentment, I'm imagining most of us think about this. I don't, I, I don't know if you're a cat person or a dog person, but I reckon if you look at that picture, that is my ultimate thing of what contentment looks like. A dog asleep in the sun... Seriously, what are they worried about? Nothing. A sleeping dog. And that's why we say let sleeping dogs lie, because they've come to a beautiful, wonderful place where they're just totally content. Is that the picture of contentment that we should have from God? Lie in the sun, chill out, someone will give you a can of food soon. No, not, not the idea, not what we're after. So what's needed for contentment? For you, right now this morning, what would you say, what do you need for contentment. Now you might say, look, all we need, it came up in the passage, all we need is food and clothing, right? And we'll be content with that. But I think in our day and age, our, our, our food and clothing has a little asterisk next to it, doesn't it? Yeah, sure, we'll be content with food and clothing. And if you can make sure I have high-speed broadband and a new pair of shoes, a holiday perhaps, a new car would be important, good schooling for my kids, a new home, uh, good food, a little bit of money, uh, good health, uh, did I mention money? Uh, leisure time, money. Uh, if I had a little bit more money, that would be good, and a little bit more money. Is that right? Basically, we're happy to be content with food and clothing, asterisks, plus a whole bunch of other stuff. Would that be fair? And in fact, our picture of contentment is ultimately we need to just keep piling that up until somehow we've got enough stuff to feel contented. 
I want us to be really challenged today by what it says in here. It's suggesting to us very strongly that the answer to contentment is not found in cramming more stuff in. In fact, it's quite radical, quite different. Have a look with me. Uh, If you've got uh, 1 Timothy open there, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to have a look at uh, verse 6 here. Paul says to Timothy, his his young friend, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, the people, uh, that the, uh, the people who had been around in, in this church, the false teachers, had seen maybe that godliness was a means to getting more money. Now, some of you might think, how on earth is godliness a means to getting more money? That's a good question. Maybe the tele-evangelists around us might have that sort of idea in mind. But most of us would see becoming a Christian probably isn't going to make you rich. In contrast to that... Paul here says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And he tells us why. Why is seeking God and living a godly life with contentment the ultimate picture? Why is that the ultimate picture? Well, he goes on and gives us a reality that we need to remember when it comes to stuff. He says this, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. We brought nothing into the world and you can take nothing out of it. There's a uh, check baggage limit as you exit this life. And the check baggage limit is anything, everything. There is nothing you can take from this life that you will take into the life of the world to come. Everything we invest in, all the things that we build up, it all gets left behind. The grave swallows it and we do not take it beyond. Godliness with contentment is great gain is because it looks beyond this life to something of infinite reward. He goes on further and he says in, uh, in verse 8 there, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Therefore, since everything is going to be left at the gate, we will be content with food and clothing. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like something that somebody really pious might say. I want you to have a think about Paul's life. Paul didn't live a life of luxury in any way, shape or form. But he says this really intriguing thing. Would you like to know his secret? His secret to being content. Have have a listen to this. This is from Philippians. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. So he's not just some sort of aesthetic who lies in a corner beating himself with a whip. Okay? He says, I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So do you want to know what the secret is? It's a little hook dangling in front of you. you Yes, of course you do. You're very eager to find out what the secret is. Here's what he says. He says, I can do all things. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The secret to being content in any and every situation is not more stuff, not the right stuff, but actually his strength in you. God, have mercy and give me a heart of contentment instead of a heart of continual longing and frustrated craving. God, give me strength to find contentment in my current situation. That's how Paul has found the ability to have godliness with contentment being great gain. So if we go back to our picture here, our lives crammed full of stuff. Here's the suggestion. 
Godliness with contentment is found by having food and clothing. You had that reading that Annabelle brought us where Jesus, we love Jesus, speaking on the mountain, he says, actually, you're worried about many, many things in life. Have a look at the flowers of the field. They're dressed better than you will ever be. I've taken care of that. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't labour, they don't clock in, clock out, they don't have barns, but God feeds them. You are worth infinitely more than the birds and the flowers. God will care for you. Food and clothing. Godliness with great contentment. So what does that mean? Well, obviously, we all have to go here. This is the application of the sermon. You all have to go home and sell everything um, and only make sure that you have food and clothing left. Everyone clear on that? I, I honestly don't think that's what it's saying. What he's saying, though, is finding a new place of contentment, a new level to be content. So it's not a move to poverty, but a radical call to appreciate our blessings with thankfulness. See, often we won't be thankful for the things we have already. We'll be craving for the things that we don't have. Can you see that? How thankful are we when we we do our grace? Do Do you know what grace is? You give thanks for your food. Does anyone do that anymore? You give thanks for your food? Why do we give thanks for our food? It acknowledges it's a gift from our creator. We should be overflowing with thankfulness for the small things rather than spending our lives obsessing for what we don't have. So I think the first thing is not a move to poverty, but a radical appreciation of our blessings with thankfulness to the one to whom they flow from. More, in light of that, should we evaluate whether our discontent will ever truly be helped by retail therapy? Have you heard of retail therapy? Even some of the people from Cheslon are nodding slightly to me. That's good. You've heard of retail therapy. You'll feel better. Go and buy some stuff and you'll feel better. Does that ever touch that point in our life where our deep discontent resides? And if it does, it only does until it's scratched or broken or needs batteries or refueling. Or... And then there's something more, isn't there? a radical reshaping of our lives so that we would see the lie in retail therapy and seek contentment from God in thankfulness for what we already have. Have a look at what he says uh, as he goes on here in, uh, in verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some people have said this might be the most misquoted verse in the Bible, yeah? How does it get understood? What's the misquoted version? Money is the root of all evil, yeah? At which point it sounds like God must be against money. He's not. And this is not saying this. Can you see what it's saying, though? The craving, the desire to be rich, the desire to have more, those who want to get rich, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So what I'd say to you is, it's a bit like happiness. Have you thought much about being happy? I don't know if you have. If you pursue happiness as an end, it's almost like you lose it in the chasing. I think when we occupy ourselves in thankfulness and devotion to others, we find happiness as a byproduct. If we chase it as a thing in itself, it almost disappears. Money, if you make it your end, you will never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied. 
However, if we in thankfulness appreciate the money that God has given us, we will find the contentment that he has on offer. It's a shift in our focus. So here's money. Has anyone seen a green one? I hardly ever see green ones. This is a green one. Uh, So what's the summary here? Well, we want to say it's not evil. Everyone, it's not evil. In fact, I need to tell you, our church won't operate without it. Yeah? Jesus told his disciples to catch a fish. You heard this story? Catch a fish, open the mouth, there'll be money in that for your temple tax. Go and pay people. Even Jesus had to use money. He was supported by women who paid money. Money is not evil. However, you and I, as people who are wanting to follow God, need to treat money with caution because it has these wonderful little hooks in it and we can start getting devoted to it and seeking it as an end in itself. A note of caution. So contentment. Yeah, remember that picture of the dog. Contentment is an apathy, though. So the truly contented Christian will be lying on a deck chair going, Lord, eventually bring me to heaven and uh, I'll be all done. Contentment isn't apathy. Have a listen to his language uh, as he goes on here in verses uh, 11 to 12. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Run away from that. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not an apathetic life. Even being content with the things that we have won't lead to inactivity. I I really like this picture. Um, You can see the commanding officer guy. He's probably just started at the gate up there, I assume. And he's just running next to him, you know, up to the end of his, whatever it is, 40-kilometre run in full pack and everything here. But you can imagine, look at this guy's face. I love it. He's striving for it, yeah? This is the picture. The picture is... Paul getting alongside Timothy and he's saying, fight the good fight of the faith. He says, flee from these things of riches, pursue things of God, fight the good fight, take hold of the life to which you are called. It's supposed to engage us, it's supposed to drive us, it's supposed to occupy our heart, mind, soul and strength. And because the world is telling you a completely different message, you will have to fight you will have to fight. See, the world, every time I turn on the TV, uh, the world tells me I need a hot chicken dinner on Tuesday night and that my family will be better if I have a hot chicken dinner on Tuesday night. Or it might mean that I need to upgrade uh, my car to, uh, what did I say the other day, a four-wheel drive that was built tough in India for Australia or something. Anyway, you, you, you listen to all these things. You look at it and the idea is it's supposed to make you dissatisfied with what you have, yes? And hunger for the next thing. It's in the air we breathe. If you're a Christian, there is a megaphone telling you, give in and go with the flow of this world. If you're going to stand for God, if you're going to pursue righteousness, if you're going to flee that, you're going to have to fight. So any picture you have of apathetic Christianity, of lazy Christianity, dump it right now. It's not going to work. We are called to be fighting. And I guess I want to ask you, aren't we fighting in our lives for more than our mortgage? Is the battle more than the traffic or the kids? Where do you experience fight in your life 
And does it at all involve standing firm for God in a world that is going rapidly the opposite direction? Notice why he says he's to stand firm and to fight. Have a look at verse 13. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. He says you're to live this way because God's in charge, because Jesus is returning. Your priorities are to be different because God is in charge. Keep this command, keep running, keep fighting, he says to Timothy, because ultimately God's in charge. In fact, there are two finish lines for this fight. You ready to know where they are? Number one, when Jesus returns, that will be when you can give up the fight. Has that happened yet? Not yet? Good. You haven't missed it, don't worry. Uh, It is coming. You and I may be alive when Jesus returns. Finish line. Well done. The second finish line is at the end when you die. When we die and go to glory, there'll be no more striving, no more working. We will see God face to face. And you and I will be able to give up this fight because the victory will have been won. As we sang in Be Thou My Vision, yeah? Be Thou My my Victory Won. May May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. So there are two finish lines for our fight. Keep running, church. Keep running, keep fighting. Well, whilst we're waiting for Jesus to return, or you to die, one of the two, I'm not waiting at all. Uh, Whilst we're waiting, who here is rich? Who's rich? I see some people putting up their hands. Wow, I'm very pleased. Who here is rich? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I think we look at riches this way, Often, we look at riches by looking backwards. Huh? We can go, oh, well, I'm, uh, I'm not as poor as them, so maybe I'm rich. That would be a very enlightened way. You look backwards and you say, oh, they're, uh, they're a lot poorer than me. I'm actually pretty rich. I reckon this is pretty underappreciated as a thing to do. I think what we actually do is look this way. We look forwards, don't we? Oh, hang on, look, we might be doing okay, but they, that is where riches are. In fact, riches is almost everyone I know. Everyone else is doing well, aren't they? Did you know, I did, I did a little thing, this, uh, this little survey thing got sent through to me about our local area, and it tells, tells me gross family income most commonly falls between $2,000 or more per week. Per week, in Oran Park. It says it generally falls between 1000 and 2000 per week, but gross family income most commonly falls between 2000 or more per week. So we're clear, that's 100k. Did you know that if your household earns more than, I'll just make sure I get this right, if your household earns more than 70k per year, your household, you are richer than 50% of all Australians. And if you earn more than 130k as a household, you're richer than 80% of Australians. Now, I don't know what you earn, thankfully. Isn't that good? I don't know. Don't know what you earn. But here's the thing. It would be very easy for us to keep looking forwards and say, we're not as rich as them, so I'm not rich. 
The ultimate trap, however, which we all fall into, is we don't think riches is anywhere up our street or down the line. We think riches is somewhere far, far away. And we obsess over the extreme, don't we? I'm not just looking through the sea of people in the deck chairs in front of me. I'm ignoring the people in the chairs behind me. I'm actually looking at the two chairs that are at the front of the water under the umbrella where someone's serving them a martini in an island I've never heard of. Yep. And that's riches, not me. Well, that's wrong. We're often struggling, but we're rich. Have a listen. I got some, uh, some Australians uh, who... Um, in this wonderful little report, actually wrote in and said what they think about their money. Uh, I'm on 70k a year before tax. I pay $240 weekly in child support, 600 a week for uh, a $470,000 home loan. My wife is expecting a baby very soon. I'm, only on, I'm, I'm the only income. We have about $200 a week left to live on. Yes, we exist, but there is little fun. Conversely, uh, Mike says... I earn $230,000 per year. I pay $75,000 income tax. I work nine months of the year away from home and family. Oh, I forgot to mention the 1.5% Medicare levy and $5,000 a year in private health insurance. Comfortable, yes. Rich, no. What does this show us, guys? It shows us we always feel that the next step will be where everyone will be comfortable. And somehow that's not true. And in the process, we say that we're not rich. How much is enough? How much is enough? Well, I think we think having a boat is pretty good, isn't it? Having a boat is enough, that's pretty good. If you can get on the water, I'm telling you, you are living like a king, is my, my impression. However, once, you're, once you've got a boat, there's this thing called five-foot syndrome. <laughs> yeah? So whatever it is, wherever we get into, we'll think, oh, no, I'll be satisfied. I've got there. I've finally got a boat on the water. But as soon as you're on the water, what happens is you look at... And we sow discontent into our lives. How much is enough is hardly ever enough. This is what Paul says to Timothy. And notice what he says. He says, you, my boy, you are to command your church this. So I do that under authority. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's good advice, isn't it? It's good advice. Not to be arrogant or put your hope in wealth. Is this money? Money is my lifesaver. Money is the place where I will feel secure. So long as we've got enough, so long as our house is paid off, the storms of this world can come and break on me and we will be fine. Money is my functional God. It's where I'm trusting. Or, alternatively, here's the challenge, where we look to God who overflows with blessing for us daily, a place of dependence on his supply rather than trusting in what I've been able to store up for myself. Will we trust God as the provider instead of looking with arrogance to our wealth? So we're not called to look backwards to those who are earning less to us, not forwards, not even obsessing over the people who are crazy and out there, but we're to look to God who provides all for our enjoyment. He goes on, he says, command them, command them, he says in verse 18, to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of life that is truly life. 
Well, what does this mean? Notice that riches are okay here. Be rich in good deeds. Get into those riches. Fantastic. So how much is enough? Get a dollar figure in your head. How much would be enough? How much is enough? And then here's the next question. Ready for this? Because he just commanded them to do something. How much is enough to be generous? Isn't that an interesting second question? When I think how much is enough, I'm thinking how much do I need to be satisfied to be able to be my own castle and kingdom without dependence on anyone else, without obligation, free to spend money whenever I want. But the question is, how much do we need to be generous? Oh God, give me a stupendously large amount of money that I can't count and then I might consider it. Yeah? How much do we need to be generous? Why mightn't we be generous? Why, why might you and I not be generous? Now, some of you will be, in which case you'll be cheering me, talking to everyone else about being generous. So you'll, you'll indulge me. For everyone else who's probably like me, why aren't we generous? Let me just give you some quick thoughts. Here they are. No, no. I, I, I got on my whiteboard, right? And I started writing down some reasons why we might not be generous. Here, I'll just give you a couple at random. Um, my obligations make things really tight for us right now. So my mortgage, my school fees, whatever, Right? That might make it difficult for me to be generous right now. Or, or maybe um, I want my kids to have better than me. So I'm putting myself under pressure because I want to keep giving to my kids. Or, or maybe we're saying uh, I'm retired, I'm on a fixed income. So I can't be generous because I'm living really set. Or you might say um, my work outlook is pretty sketchy so I can't be generous at the moment. I've got to be stuffing it in the hollow log, yeah? Or maybe we say I'm pretty tight. I've got Scottish genes, yeah? The, the reason I, I can't be generous is I've got Scottish genes. I do actually do have Scottish genes, which is good. It's my reason, right? Okay. Uh, may, maybe you say, uh, some people aren't good recipients. I can't be generous because they're jerks with the money. Yeah, why would I give them that money? Yeah? Or some people might say, um, I don't know how to be generous. I've got no examples to follow. Some of us might have a whole bunch of reasons. And they, may, they not, may not be your reasons. So how might we start? Tell you how I've started to start. Okay? Started to start. All right. Here's some tips. Again, from my whiteboard. Here's some tips. Okay, first thing. I think we need to be prayerful. We need to be prayerful because we need to ask God's help. Give me contentment so I can start. Be prayerful. Secondly, we need to be thankful. You and I need to look at the blessings we have and recognize them and say, God, you're the provider. I am thankful. Thirdly, we need to be faithful. Take care of your obligations, okay? It isn't an excuse to be a bad citizen, not to look after people who are in your care. Be faithful. Fourthly, start somewhere. This is brilliant. You might think, oh, until I'm Bill Gates giving a billion dollars a year away, I shouldn't start. And I'd say, you know what? Most of these things start with something small. Start somewhere doing something. Start somewhere. And one of my things I've been practicing is when I think about an amount of money that I'm going to give, I think of it because I always think up an eighth of an eighth of an eighth of an eighth of something that would actually cost me a lot, right? Are you with me? You know, you see someone on the street, right? Be generous to them. Imagine you opened your wallet. It's the second biggest note, isn't it? Anyway, maybe not for you. You're beautiful. I love you. It's the second biggest note often. So I'm thinking, why don't I think of a figure and then double it as a start? Push each other. 
Be good at encouraging one another. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to go, have you been generous this week? No. But in my household, I love my wife because we come up with something and she'll say, oh, I was thinking of this much. (laughs) Yes, you're good. Let's be generous. Push one another. Be crazy in being generous. Uh, And then... uh, Take steps to make space. So some of our fixed obligations mean you can't be generous today. Start doing some little changes today so you've got room to be generous in the future. Uh, And then repeat. All right, that's that's some good tips. Oh, I want to say with great wealth comes great generosity. Very good, okay. Um, In this way, we'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of life that is truly life. I think in this whole thing, there are three challenges. This is where I'm going to leave you. Three challenges. Number one, do we believe, do we believe that Jesus will return, that our wealth won't go with us? And if you don't, don't worry. Forget what I've said. It won't apply. Do we truly believe with our treasure that it's not going to come in suitcases with us, but that you and I can send it to an offshore tax haven where it will be greatly... Isn't this amazing? You can send your wealth ahead of you, give it away to other people. Lay up treasure for heaven is what Jesus says, quite literally. That's crazy talk, isn't it? You can't take it through the checkout into heaven, but you can give it away now and it'll be deposited in your account there. I don't know what that looks like in practice, but that's what Jesus says. Thirdly, ultimately, this is the end game. Why would you give your money away? Why on earth would you do that? Only and only if you trust that your heavenly father has your back and will look after you. Do we trust him? Let's pray. Heavenly father, we want to be a people who will take hold of life that is truly life, who will be generous in this life, who want to see the blessings that flow from your hand. Father, may money not be a trap and a snare for us, Help us to be open-handed. Help us to push one another in generous giving that we may may lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven and take hold of life that is most truly life. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.